You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, church. Wonderful to see you. Uh, If you have a Bible, go ahead and open that to Genesis chapter four. While you're turning there, let me introduce myself. If we've not had the privilege of meeting, my name is Brady Goodwin, and I have the honor of serving as one of the pastors here at Northway. Um, We're continuing our series this morning in the book of Genesis, and we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter four, verses one through 16. This is the story of Cain and Abel. It's probably a familiar story for most of us, but one that I believe um, the Lord will use to speak to us this morning. Uh, And part of the reason I believe that, just a little intro and reminder about what we believe regarding the nature of God's word. Um, We're opening a book that uh, this account, this narrative is thousands of years old, yet a story that I believe God will use to speak to the specific areas of need in your heart and in my heart. And every time we open scripture, that opportunity exists. And so one of the things I wanna do after we read this is to pray that God would do that, that wherever it is that he intends to do some work with you this morning, um, that he would be so gracious to do that and that we would have um, receptive ears to hear the word of the Lord. Um, So let's read this text, Genesis 4, verses 1 through 16. We will pray and we'll begin. Genesis 4, verse 1, the word of God says this, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me away today from the ground and from your face, I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. 
Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Let's pray as we begin. Father, we give thanks to you for the opportunity to open your word and to hear from you. And we pray that as we reflect upon this account and these events, that you would help us to see the way in which our own lives are reflected in a story like this. That we would see from the very earliest pages of your scripture, the desperate need that exists in our life for an answer to sin. We thank you that as we come to you, we do so on the other side of the event that changed everything of the way in which you have chosen to answer the problem of sin with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who died for sinners and who was raised for our righteousness and sanctification. We pray that as we reflect upon these words that you would do work in our hearts to help us to see both the need we have for forgiveness, but also the provision that has been given through Christ. We ask in his name, amen. So as we begin, I just want to think with you how a story like this starts to make sense of our lives. Because one of the challenges, as we've already mentioned, is that given the history of this kind of event, um, it can feel a little distant from my life and your life and the current realities that we face. But what I hope we will see is that looking at this story is going to reveal some real foundational truths for us that start to give some sense and give shape to the way we understand of our lives. Um, In this text, there are four different truths that do such a thing. um, And in many ways, they actually summarize the very essence of the gospel. These are truths that are present in this story, but they are also woven into the entire narrative of scripture. But what I hope we will see very clearly is the way in which these truths lay a foundation for us to understand more deeply the beauty of the hope of Jesus Christ and his gospel. So there's four truths we're gonna look at today, all of which that are contributing to that goal. Truth number one is this, all of human history is the story of the battle between faith and unbelief. All of human history is the story of the battle between faith and unbelief. A couple of weeks ago, we learned when we looked at Genesis 3, the second half of Genesis 3, that scholars often refer to God's word of judgment to the serpent in Genesis 3.15 as the proto-euangelion. Okay, that's just a fancy word that means first gospel. Genesis 3.15, to remind you, says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. These are God's words to the serpent in judgment. But what has also been observed relative to this passage is that this judgment represents a foreshadowing of two major narrative threads that run throughout the Old Testament. Genesis 3.15 tells us about two different kinds of offspring, the children of Eve and the children of the serpent. These two groups whose storylines often intertwine but create much of the drama and suspense in the story of Israel's beginning in the book of Genesis. And it's often this apparent threat to the children of Eve 
that forms the backdrop for these several stunning demonstrations of God's faithfulness to his people and his continuing purposes to bring redemption through this family line. Redemption that goes all the way forward until we get to the birth of Jesus in the town of Bethlehem. But Genesis 4 is the very first case study of life after the garden that portrays in real life the relationship between these two ancestral threads. And so what we're gonna notice first is that this this story, the first half of chapter four, is that there is a significant contrast between a heart of faith that is characterized by Abel and a heart of belief, unbelief that is evidenced in Cain's life. That's the first thing I want you to see. It's here. But first, let's rule out a couple of things that this passage is not saying, okay? Commentators have speculated that perhaps the difference of vocation in Abel's life or Cain's life was the reason that God accepted Abel's offering rather than Cain's. Abel was a keeper of sheep, Cain, a worker of the ground. But there are numerous examples of both shepherds and farmers that are viewed positively in Scripture, which means that we can say with some confidence that the issue was not the kind of work that Cain and Abel both did. Second, some have said, in addition, that maybe it was the type of sacrifice that was offered that represented the differences between Cain and Abel and why God accepted Abel's offering rather than Cain's. These scholars look at Abel offering a blood sacrifice, Cain bringing forth a grain offering, and they suggest that maybe Abel better understood the need for a sacrifice that could provide atonement for sin. But that's not actually what this kind of sacrifice was. Cain and Abel are simply bringing a worship offering. The same word is used to describe the offering that Cain brings and the offering that Abel brings, even though they were different things that were offered. The purpose was the same, an offering of worship brought by two brothers before the Lord. So no, the real issue, this is the thing I want us to see, Rather than differences in vocation or the type of sacrifice offered, the real issue that separated Cain from Abel that made all the difference between why God accepted Abel rather than Cain was the issue of faith. God accepted Abel's offering because it was an offering that issued forth from a heart of belief, worship, and obedience. Cain's offering represented something different. This isn't to say that Cain didn't have some kind of belief but rather that in this action, what is being demonstrated is a heart of unbelief and of opposition towards God that's being expressed. There's two reasons this is true. First, look at how Cain responds when God accepts Abel and not Cain and his offering versus uh, Cain's. Verse five says, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. How do you respond? when someone else receives what you so desperately wanted, but you didn't. Scripture would call us to rejoice with those who are rejoicing, but our typical response is to struggle through feelings of jealousy, anger, bitterness. And when these emotions are expressed in your life and in my life, they almost always reflect a fundamental belief about the way that we think things should go. Often, this is not a desire for other people not to have something good. We just want it too. That's what's happening when we look at Cain's response. It's not necessarily jealousy over Abel's good fortune, but it is displeasure at Cain's exclusion. But notice how God diagnoses Cain's heart. In verse six, he says, why are you angry? 
And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? He tells Cain that if he will commit himself to faith and obedience, which were absent in his offering, he will receive the same acceptance as Abel. But the second reason that we know that Cain is operating from a heart of unbelief is that New Testament writers refer to this event through that lens. In Hebrews 11, verse four, the author tells us that by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. Notice the relationship. Faith led him to the sacrifice and it was faith that was the basis of its acceptance. John in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, looks at it through a negative lens and describes Cain as being from the evil one. It's not something I want to be said about me. Cain is described in this way. The point is that the fundamental conflict in the story of Cain and Abel is the conflict between faith and unbelief. This is in turn the, the conflict that is at the heart of the dual narratives of the children of Eve and the children of serpent of the serpent in the Old Testament. The children of Eve and their stories are lives that represent faith in God worked out through the narrative of redemption whereas the stories of the children of the serpent are ultimately those of rebellion and devastation. But here's what I want us to see very, very clearly. This conflict of faith and unbelief, that's the same basic conflict in our lives. It's the same basic conflict that you and I are working out day by day. One passage of scripture that highlights this is Jeremiah 17, verses five through eight, where it says, Jeremiah relaying the words of God, thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. But notice the contrast. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. In other words, people will either trust in themselves or other people or they will trust in the Lord. Those who hope in God can see flourishing and renewal in their life even in the midst of adversity while those who do not find themselves experiencing pain without relief and drought and desolation. Jesus also echoes this contrast in Luke 6, verse 45, when he describes how the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good and the evil person out of the evil treasure of his heart, out of his evil treasure produces evil for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We could look at additional examples, whether historical or personal, but the point remains the same. We live our lives in one of two ways, by faith in God and his promises or by unbelief. The story of Cain and Abel is but the first example post-fall that illustrates this reality. That's truth number one. All of life is the story of the battle between faith and unbelief. Truth number two, sin's power is far greater than you or I really know or comprehend. Sin's power is far greater than you and I really know or comprehend. Let's look at the second half of verse uh, seven. 
God says to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Notice first the imagery. God refers to sin like a predator that stalks its prey. And I'm no biologist, but prey, from my understanding, that are being stalked usually do not know they are under threat, okay? So my kids love those David Attenborough documentaries, and I know you do too, okay? I, everybody loves these, right? His voice, it's amazing. Um, but what happens in these documentaries? Animals get eaten, always, right? So it's a gazelle that's wandering about you know, aimlessly, and there's a, or there's a pack of gazelle, there's always the baby, God, it's the baby. Like it gets left and what's, what's waiting for that baby? A lion. And then the whole thing shows the lion chasing it until finally it just pulls it down and just rips it apart. My kids love the one where it's the it's a blue, blue planet or they're in the ocean and there's this huge whale carcass. And all they wanted to see back when they were like two and three was this whale getting demolished by sharks. We love this stuff. I think then there is a very specific reason that God uses this comparison when describing sin. He wants Cain to understand that there is real danger in his situation. It is not a passive environment. Sin is after him. And if he will not heed the warning signs, there will be very little he can do to avoid its attack. So let's consider how this is happening in Cain's situation. God is warning Cain that he is on a precipice. And if he doesn't take a few steps back, he's going to fall off the ledge. But what Cain seems to display, and what is also very common for us, is the striking inability to see the circumstantial environmental conditions that give rise to sin before sin appears. He doesn't understand that God is warning him that conditions are right for a tragic error. One analogy I have used to illustrate this tendency in our lives over the years in counseling is uh, that of barometric pressure, okay? Back when I was a kid, I had this period of time where I thought I'm gonna be a meteorologist. So I had all the weather books and I was really fascinated with tornadoes for some reason. But all, all of this was um, a very significant interest to me. So if you're wondering, what is barometric pressure? Barometric pressure just simply refers to the conditions that either give rise to severe weather or to ensure that the day will remain sunny and cloudless. And just as we do not sin in a vacuum, but rather make decisions that flow from specific context and which are informed by specific factors, weather works the same way. The higher the pressure, the more likely storms will appear. If you go outside in springtime in Texas, you can feel the pressure as the heat in the air begins to collide with the coolness of the atmosphere. And very often the same is true in our lives. So the barometric pressure that Cain is experiencing is high, it's extreme. And it shows up in three ways. First, he didn't have the right heart posture bringing his offerings to God. We've seen this. He was driven not by faith, but unbelief. Second, he has experienced rejection, at least as he sees it. He's feeling outside and doesn't understand what's going on. God had regard for Abel, but not for Cain. But third, he responded to this rejection with anger. So these three things, unbelief, perceived rejection, and anger, three elements that if left unresolved, always lead to danger, which is why God warns him so directly of the encroaching threat. 
But of course, you and I experience this kind of pressure as well. Perhaps some of our lives are marked by the same frustrations and disappointments present in Cain's life. So circumstantially, it looks like everything is going wrong. And it becomes very difficult for us to maintain a heart posture of faith and dependence before the Lord. Some of us see the pressure rise because we cultivate a selfish life. We're always thinking about ourselves and our perceived needs, and it narrows our vision to such an extent that our eyes look nowhere but inward. Some of us are walking in a period of abundance, and in our seeming invincibility, we don't realize how much risk there actually is as we take our eyes away from the Lord. So whatever it may be, these mindsets, these ways of living, They lead us to a place where because we don't have eyes to see the conditions developing, like a crouching tiger awaiting its prey, we are completely caught off guard when sin strikes. We wake up stunned that what happened has happened and we can't understand why. It's because a storm was brewing, a predator was watching and we were ill-equipped and unprepared for its advance. The second thing that we have to understand about the way God describes sin, first, he uses this analogy. Second, he points to the scope of sin's potential power over Cain. The ESV translation states that sin's desire is contrary to Cain. It reflects the same language that's used in Genesis 3.16 when God says that because of the fall, because of sin's corrupting effect, the woman's desire in a marriage relationship would be contrary to her husband. That means that just as sin's effects show up there where God's good and beautiful design would now be subverted and upended, sin's intent in Cain's life was to dominate and rule over him. Sin stands opposed to Cain, seeking to disrupt any potential of good or righteousness that was possible in this situation. Yet because this language is combined with the imagery of a predator stalking prey, it takes on a more comprehensive and destructive meaning. It's not just that sin's desire is to rule over and dominate Cain, it's that it intended to devour him completely, to do such damage in his life, to so consume him that all that remains is a shell of corruption and evil. This is sin's intent in your life. Sin does not originate in our actions, but in our very hearts. And it so strives to infiltrate the faculties of our inner life that we are blind to its presence, but we nonetheless live and act as its servants in the way that we choose to live and the things we are committed to. And this is exactly what happened in Cain's life. The pressure was high, Cain couldn't see it. And when sin overcame him, there was nothing that he could do. So this brings us to our third truth. Truth number one, all of of our stories, all of human life is the story of the battle between faith and unbelief. Story number two, sin is more powerful than you and I can really know or imagine. Truth number three, sin and its effects cannot be dismissed or ignored. Sin and its effects cannot be dismissed or ignored. I can recall times in my life where it felt like a foregone conclusion that the very choice I most desired to resist was the choice I was destined to make. I would feel that seemingly irresistible pull in my heart 
and I couldn't free myself from its grip. But what happens also in that helplessness is that in those moments, there is a kind of plausible deniability where we just think just for a moment that perhaps our choice will not lead to the same conclusion that it once did or that sin naturally and logically produces. But I know that in my years of pastoral ministry that this experience I have just described is just about as common as any other example of human struggle. We think about the examples of our lives that show us the fulfillment of passages like James chapter one, verses 14 and 15, where James says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So not only does sin desire to consume us, but it only leaves devastation in its wake. And this devastation is the central event in the story of Cain and Abel. Verse eight does not give us a lot of narrative detail, but we can see the inevitability to Cain's path, just as we have when we've been overcome by sin. Verse eight says this, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. Many translations actually include a phrase that appears in some manuscripts that adds, uh, adds this, that as Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, he said, let's go out into the field. If this phrase is genuine, it adds a sobering description of intent and deceit in Cain's actions that only sharpen the focus on the state of his heart. Despite God's warning that sin was stalking Cain to consume him, Cain's heart is still being driven by evil. So there is then the obvious and clear direct effect of of Cain's choice. Abel's life is lost. The first murder in human history occurs between the first sons born to woman. But Cain's choice also shows us several characteristics of sin that we need to understand so that we can really grasp how it underscores um, its effect in our lives. The first is this, that sin is always relational. It's always relational. This happens in a very clear way in this narrative. Cain kills Abel. There is a horizontal relationship. When we choose to sin, we violate these kinds of relationships very often if our sin touches the lives of other people. But there is always a vertical dimension to our sin. It always is expressed in a vertical relationship between us and the Lord. It may be with another person, but it is always a violation against our relationship with God. The second truth is that sin's reality is inescapable. We can't can't escape it. Immediately in this narrative, we see a parallel with Genesis 3 because just as God sought out Adam in the garden after the fall and asked him, where are you? So too does God ask Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And despite Cain's instinctive deceit and deflection, I don't know, am I responsible for him? The reality of his crime comes into full view and he cannot escape. Maybe you're familiar with the famous Edgar Allan Poe story, The Telltale Heart. You familiar with that story? Okay, you still read stories, young people, in school? Okay. I don't think I read this when I was in school. I went back and looked it up as I was preparing for this, and I thought, that's actually really short. I probably would have read that. Okay. In The Telltale Heart, the protagonist, or rather maybe the antagonist, um, he's narrating a, a, a short story 
where he kills an unsuspecting elderly neighbor. There is a really vivid description of his motivation and what he's after. But after the deed is done, he disposes of the body in a relatively, not relatively, in a significantly gruesome way and seems content that nobody heard, nobody saw, nobody's gonna know. So he is surprised to find police at the door of the old man's house in the middle of the night because of a noise complaint from a neighbor. The noise complaint was actually the victim crying out as he saw his attacker. But so assured is the killer of his own impunity that he invites the investigators to rest from their work in the very room where the crime occurred. But it is here that he begins to hear the sound of the dead man's heartbeat coming from the floorboards where his body was hit. He is convinced that these policemen hear what he hears. And in his paranoia and guilt and conviction, he confesses his crime and he points them to the old man's body. I wasn't there when Poe wrote this, but I can't help but think that perhaps he was thinking about Genesis 4. Because in verse 10, we read a similar injunction. When the Lord God says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. His point is this, what you have done cannot be undone. It cannot be escaped. You are guilty. Abel's blood is crying out your guilt. You will have to account for your deeds. Third, sin also brings consequences to our lives. In verse 11, God tells Cain that as a result of this crime, he will now be cursed in his labor in the ground, a clear parallel to Adam's judgment in Genesis 3. In addition, he would also live as a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. So as with sin's reversal of Adam's state in the garden, so too will Cain now experience the effect of his sin on his vocation and his security. He could not expect to avoid the reality of his actions any more than we may if we are confronted with the reality of our choices before God and others. But fourth and amazingly, mercifully, God does not deal with us according to our sins. David will say this in Psalm 103, verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. This is so counterintuitive because Cain is guilty. He has done something horrendous. But yet when he appeals to God in response to this judgment, God demonstrates his mercy. He promises that if anyone should kill Cain, they would experience the vengeance of the Lord in greater degree than Cain did when faced with the consequences of his own behavior. He even puts a mark on Cain, you don't really know what that is. The text doesn't say there's been a lot of wrong answers that have been supplied that are unsatisfactory. So we'll just say there was some kind of mark so that people would know, steer clear, he is the Lord's. But it was there so that Cain would be able to know that he was not receiving what he deserved. And so notice, even though sin's effect is what it is, and even though the consequences for sin are often commensurate with the significance of our choices, they nevertheless still fall under the purview of God's mercy. He does not treat us according to what our sins truly deserve, because if we truly understood the depths to which our sin necessitated judgment, we would be stuck in terror before making the choices we make. We would be frozen. Even when we do make such choices, even when we do wreck shop with our lives, so often 
God does not give us what is due. Cain, despite his rebellion, his deceit, and his pride, was still the recipient of God's mercy on the basis of nothing but the grace of God for sinners. This brings us to our fourth and final truth. We've talked about how all of human history is the story between faith and unbelief, that sin's power is greater than you and I can really know or comprehend, and how third, sin's effects are inescapable. But fourth, here's the thing we have to hear. Truth number four, the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Earlier, we looked at Hebrews 11, verse four. It says this, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. The author of Hebrews is saying that because Abel's sacrifice was given by faith, the faith that motivated his sacrifice still speaks as it relates to human relationships with God. Just as Cain was rejected because of unbelief, Abel was accepted by faith. And so too must faith be at the heart of any approach we have before God. This is crucial because it was not just Abel's faith that spoke, but his blood. His blood called out Cain's guilt and it demanded justice. Abel's blood calls out today. It calls out in our lives. It calls out in our society. The blood of 10 men and women killed yesterday because of the color of their skin in Buffalo, New York. Their blood calls out. The devastation that our sin brings to other people, the way in which our choices, your choices and my choices, wreak havoc in a person's life. These things cry out for judgment. Every time we sinfully put ourselves before God and other people, every time our words or actions scar another person, every time deceit reigns instead of truth or integrity, we will stand accountable before God. Many times when I sit with someone in a counseling setting, one of the first passages of scripture I ask them to think about and reflect on is 2 Corinthians 5, 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. But what we often forget is what verse 10 says, for we will all stand before the judgment of Christ to give account for what we've done, whether good or evil. We will stand accountable before God for what we do. Just as Cain dealt with the reality of sin's effects on his situation, so too must we reckon with the presence of sin's stain on our relationship with God and our lives before him. But here's what's the most amazing thing in the history of the world. Unlike the story of Cain, you and I have the opportunity to be united to one whose blood is stronger than the blood of Abel. Even more than this, we can be connected to the one who fully fulfilled the requirement that God gave to Cain as the first older brother. Jesus is the better able. He is the one who in mediating a new covenant by his blood and in crying out on behalf of sinners can secure the true depths of forgiveness that our sin necessitated. But Jesus is also the redeemed brother's keeper. 
He is the one who truly fulfilled the requirement of Cain to watch after those in his care. Jesus is the one whose blood, in accordance with Hebrews 12, 24, speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We have to see this. Where Abel's blood cries out our judgment, Jesus' blood cries out God's mercy. So let's go back to that original question. How does a story like this begin to make sense of our lives? How do we start to apply these truths in such a way that it makes a difference for us? Three takeaways. The first is we have to recognize the fundamental choice between unbelief and faith in our lives for what it is. Will we trust God or will we rely on ourselves? Sometimes we get hung up on whether daily decisions reflect faith or not in ways that miss the point, right? Should I eat this food? I mean, maybe that's a faith thing. Should I go to Whataburger tonight? No. Unbelief. But it's attention, right? You know this. Don't act like you don't know this. We get hung up on these things and it misses the point. I'm referring to the way instead of seeing and living in the world that is marked by belief. Belief that God is both creator and Lord. Belief that we are his creatures. Belief that he has loved us to such an extent that he himself has come to make right what our sin has made wrong. Belief that he now then invites us to live in the freedom that comes from being his children. This is what I mean. Living between the contrast of faith and unbelief means making decisions, having conversations, engaging our families, loving our neighbors from this perspective rather than the alternative, which is a false narrative with the wrong main character in the starring role. Second, we have an opportunity to grow in understanding sin's influence on our hearts. In other words, we can learn to see the pressure as it begins to build. We can learn to observe our situation, to see the signs that this is growing, that sin is on the prowl, that we are at risk. And I will admit this is a difficult thing to do because it's not always apparent that we are in danger. Honestly, I still feel like I am an infant in this sometimes. Make progress in certain areas, fall on my face. Make progress in certain areas, fall on my face. But we have the opportunity to grow we have the opportunity to mature in increasing measure as we come to God in his word, as we take time to reflect on our choices and the motivations that inform them, and as we allow God's voice and the voice of other people who love him to help us as we grow. And then third and finally, we should not fear the recognition of our sin. We should not be afraid to acknowledge it for what it really is but we should instead see it as an occasion to receive God's mercy. We have said this already in so many ways. Sin is. When it's there, it's there. And it has a traumatic impact on our lives and the lives of others. And what I would want you to hear from me this morning, whatever the Lord is doing, this is not gonna be true for all of you, but for some of you, it will be. If there are things in your life that remain unconfessed, if there is sin that you have hidden because of fear, it will never just go away. That's not how it works. God has put conviction in your heart. He has given eternity into the hearts of men. The reason why is so that we would be able to see our desperate need and cry out to him for mercy and forgiveness. 
And so if that's you, my encouragement is to bring it to the Lord, to bring it to those who may be affected by it so that you would be able to experience true healing and redemption. This is crucial because if, if we don't do this, if we are unwilling to confront the reality of the cane that lives within each one of us, we will not see the beauty of the one whose blood is more powerful than Abel's. God will help us. He will help you because his grace is greater than our sin. So as we come to the Lord's table, let's pray to this end where Abel's blood cries out our judgment. Jesus' blood declares God's mercy. Pray with me as we go to the table and remember the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. Father, we ask for your help. We thank you for the truth of your promises and the beauty of Jesus Christ, that his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Would you help us to believe, to trust, and to follow you? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.